Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. And maybe you feel that way this morning as you gathered in here with us, and maybe you barely got here. But here you are, and I want you to know and hear and understand and receive and believe and trust that God has more mercy and more grace than you do sin. And he welcomes you in. He calls out to you in the gospel, and he says, I have made a way for you. And so what a joy and a, what a delight that we can come, and that he welcomes us. What good news. Welcome this morning. Glad that you're here, here in the auditorium or in the fellowship hall or watching at home online. We are so glad that you're with us in some form or another today. What a privilege, what a joy to be able to make much of the one who has more grace and more mercy than we do sin. And we get to continue to do that in our series in Exodus. And if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, uh, a little bit of a lengthier portion. We're going to obviously consider the whole of the chapter as it's dealing with one terrible incident at Mount Sinai. So let's turn our thoughts, our attention, even our affection to the Lord as we come to his word. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains? and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger, relent from the disaster against your people. 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That's a lot. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is truth, and by your spirit brings life. God, we pray that you would do a truth-giving, spirit-bringing work in our hearts this day. Help us, we pray, in the preaching, in the hearing, in the receiving, and the believing of this, your word, to your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. <clears throat> Excuse me. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. That's the general thesis of a book from scholar Greg Beale. The book is called We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And he tackles idolatry over the course of the whole of Scripture. And certainly a very big point of attention is given to Exodus 32. And in the heart of what he is saying and what is said with worship in general is that whatever is ultimate in our hearts will shape, inevitably shape our lives. Our values, our priorities, our thoughts, our affections, our attitudes, our actions, our whole manner of living is going to be shaped and informed and begin to reflect that which we behold, which we say is ultimately ultimate in our hearts. It will show up in what we look like and sound like and feel like in this life. Our hearts are made for worship, and we will worship something. It will either be God or it will be idolatry. There's really no gray on this issue. Our hearts are made to worship. Idolatry leads to ruin. God leads to restoration. In our passage this morning, uh, this passage for us reveals it to us in over overwhelming ways. My hope is that it prompts our hearts to worship God, to be honest about what things we struggle with in our hearts, to turn away from it and turn to God and to treasure Him. That's where we're going to be heading. That we would indeed see the seriousness of idolatry and the ease of which it grips our hearts, and that we would want to individually and as families, collectively as a church, keep from idols. That we want to keep from idolatry. And to keep ourselves from idols, to keep ourselves from idolatry, as we work through this passage, there are two things that we really need to come to grips with, that we really need to understand and know, that we really need to see and believe. The first is this, the disaster of idolatry. We have to see it as a disaster. Utterly ruinous. That we would know this and see this and believe it, that idolatry is a disaster, a dead end. It is utter failure. 
And then secondly, if we're going to see it as such, that idolatry is a disaster, then we need to know some way, somehow, we have to know how in the world can we overcome it? How can it be defeated? So, what is then the defeat of idolatry? It's a disaster. It needs to be defeated. How can that be? How can we avoid the disaster and see it defeated? That's where we're going to go this morning. So let's go there together. The disaster of idolatry. First is, we have to define it, and then we need to see it displayed. So we're going to define idolatry, and then we want to see it displayed here in our passage so we can better understand it, so that we can better understand the nature of it, so we can better understand it, what's going on in our hearts. Because I don't think any of you are making a golden calf, but every one of us in this room is an expert idol maker. We are. No matter our age or place in this life, we can make idols with the best of them. That's the heart. Left to itself. Left to its sin. So, let's define it. First of all, we need to know and understand the seriousness of idolatry. And if you want to just recall real quickly, before we define it, we need to remember or bring back to mind those first four commandments and the Ten Commandments that we considered back in Exodus. They're, in a way, dealing with this whole notion of, of, of worship and idolatry. And if you recall, we, we gave one word sort of summations for each of those first four um, commandments, and that was only real, true worship, that these commandments, these first four, are helping guard our hearts and guide our hearts to what God has designed us for, and that is only real, true worship. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5, really help us see this issue of, of understanding that our hearts are going to worship something, and you even get the feel and the sense of it in those first four commands. Consider these words. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Yahweh, to his people in those commandments, is is saying, here's how to live. Before anything else, worship me. Before anything else, keep me as ultimate. The first command is a positive. It's It's worship me. There's no other gods. Second one, third one, fourth one are are helping us round out how we go about doing that, and they come with sort of a negative. Don't do these things, right? God's caring very intently and deliberately for the human heart because we, as we sang already, are prone to wander. Those words are relevant to us because we know that feel, the prone to wander. So, here we are, we're faced with the seriousness of this, and so how do we then go about defining it? How would we define idolatry? Well, again, a a lot of definitions all are in the same ballpark, but I'll I'll borrow again from Beale. puts it this way. Whatever your heart clings to or relies upon for ultimate security, that's idolatry. Anything other than God, of course, that's the, the, the summation, the point. Whatever, that's not God, your heart clings to and relies upon for ultimate security, that is idolatry. Again, something other than God 
asking it to be ultimate to you is an aspect of idolatry. Ultimate in purpose. Ultimate in meaning. Ultimate in focus for your heart. Ultimate in everything. And whatever is ultimate in your heart will inevitably shape your life. Idolatry is asking something to be and give what only God can be and give. So at the very basis of idolatry, it's set up for failure. It's asking what only God can be and give to do that for you. That's idolatry. Now, let's see that displayed in our passage. What we find displayed in our passage is a spiritual disaster that has all sorts of emotional, relational, and physical consequences. It is a disaster. Disaster doesn't feel like a strong enough word for what we dread in our passage. It is a disaster. And the, to summarize it, let's look back at two verses with the Lord speaking to Moses to get sort of a capsule form of this disaster. And we're going to work through five descriptions that God says to Moses about the nature and character of this disaster of idolatry. Looking again at verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Corrupted. If you are an underliner or highlighter in your Bible, that would be one that I would highlight. They corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly. There's another one. Out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Corrupted, turned aside quickly, worshipped, sacrificed, and said. We see the dynamic of idolatry on display in these five things. And these five things are essentially at heart in any idolatry, in any heart, in any time, in all of history. They're there are the things that are going on when we're, we're holding on to something as ultimate that isn't God. So what is it that we're doing and participating in and as we see on display here in our chapter? First is corrupted. Literally means to go to ruin or to pervert. To corrupt is to go to ruin, to take something and, and just obliterate it to ruin or to pervert it in its purpose. And we see really both of those dynamics on display. Part of the plundering that God promised the people and provided. So, so he promised that they would leave Egypt, plundering Egypt, bringing with them resources that they didn't possess in, them, in and of themselves. And he fulfilled that promise when they left Egypt. They, they left with the things that God promised that they would leave with. Well, they took some of that plunder. They took some of that promise fulfilled God holds true to his word and his promises, and they utterly ruined it. The gold that they took off of their ears, the gold that wasn't theirs, the gold that was a part of that plunder, they ruined and turned into 
an idol. Disaster. This is a disaster. A thing that would be a constant reminder of the faithfulness and salvation of God. They turned into an idol. And then they perverted. They perverted the ways in which God was instructing them. So what happened was they, they had Aaron make this thing. And Aaron made it. And then they, they sat down. They ate and they drank. And then, and then they played. They perverted what we saw already happening. When Moses and the leadership and the priests went up the mountain halfway up, what did they do? They sat down with God. They ate and they drank and they worshipped. So now there's already a perversion of what it's, it's taking this form, this structure, this thing that God put in place and perverting it into idol worship. Instead of worshiping God, they played. And, and you might think, what were they doing? Like ultimate Frisbee or were they like, you know, you know, having some sort of like epic bingo game? I don't know. What did they play? Well, really, what they were doing was following a pagan ritualistic practice that they would have known and seen either in Egypt or the neighboring pagan nations. So they were bringing in pagan worship into this moment that was following the real structure of worship that God was already giving them. They perverted it. So that's what's happening in idolatry is a corruption. It's bringing to ruin and perverting our hearts to worship something that is false. That's staggering. That makes me feel uncomfortable, right? That that can operate in my own heart? That my heart is a, is a click away from falling into that? Secondly, we find that they turned away quickly. So not only did they corrupt, but they turned away quickly. They stopped following God. They left the right path and they did so with haste and with purpose. They did it speedily. They, they hurried up and bailed on God. They turned away because their hearts were set on something else. Something else was ultimate. So, so God had no more value to them in their, in their way of looking at life and living. And so they turned away. We're going to come back to that later. But that was the nature. They, they quickly speedily bailed their their human appointed leader Moses is gone my parents are away so I'm going to eat all the Cheetos thirdly they worshipped this thing that was fashioned they gave ultimate worth to the, that part of the heart that God has wired us to, to have this sense of worship, this giving our heart to this ultimate worth, they took that instead of the God who, mind you, keep in mind, they're at this base of this mountain that, remember, visually, it's this flame, flaming top and dark clouds and thunder and lightning, and it shakes. There was that random loud trumpet, like, there were all these sorts of things that were bringing to their mind and their attention. Like, no, God is real. And yet, they worshipped this thing that they made. So they corrupted, they turned away quickly, they worshipped, and then fourthly, they sacrificed. We just spent a whole bunch of time 
the last few weeks looking over a whole bunch of chapters of very intricate discussions and descriptions and instructions that God gave to the people of God for their tabernacle worship system where God's presence would dwell with God's people and there would be true worship that would occur. There would be sin atoned for and cared for that, so that the people could draw near and worship God and his presence and his glory would dwell with them. It was an incredible picture and we took time to see how all of it was foreshadowing and pointing us forward to Jesus, that we would dwell with God through Christ. He would take away all the obstacles of our sin and all those who are in Christ get to dwell with God forever. I mean, it's a beautiful picture and all of these things within those descriptions and in those instructions comes the descriptions and instructions for the altar and for sacrifices and offerings. And now we find that that's exactly what they're doing. They build an altar, altar, And they set up sacrifices and offerings to a thing they made. Corrupted, turned aside, worshipped, sacrificed. And then fifthly, they said some stuff. They attributed glory to an idol. They said, our salvation is found in this idol. They attribute their salvation from Egypt to the idols they created. This is what's on display in our passage. This is what's on display in idolatry. No matter how pleasant the idol might be in the way that we live out our lives, because we can find some very comfortable, easy idols. No matter how pleasant they might be, no matter how calm and good and generally accepted they might be, that's operating in the heart when idols are ruling the day. So that's on display, but, but there's more. And that's where we started at the beginning of this, is that whatever we reveal, revere, we resemble. For ruin or restoration, we become like what we behold. Whatever we're beholding is ultimate, is going to shape the way that we live. And so they became like their idol. They became like what they beheld. <coughs> Excuse me. There are, few, there are three instances where the language is inescapable. It's clear what is being said about the people. The first is found in verse 9, chapter 32, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The word there for stiff-necked would be a common description of a wild cow unwilling to be tamed, unwilling to be brought into a herd, unwilling to follow the herdsmen. It was a common description of that kind of an animal that was just unwilling to get a part of the program. It was stiff-necked. They made a golden calf, and they are like a stiff-necked cow. We find, again, another one in verse 25, which we didn't read beforehand, but I encourage you to read the chapter as a whole. (coughs) Excuse me. In verse 25, when Moses saw the people, they had broken loose. They had broken loose. Again, just like stiff-necked, broken loose was a very common description for that of a wild cow, of something that wasn't going to stay pinned up in the herd, in this tamed status, breaking loose to be wild. And then thirdly, the very next verse, in verse 26, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. 
stood in the gate. <laughs> Again, very basic, very common visual word usage of the practice of a herdsman trying to bring order to his cattle, to his herd. We become like what we behold. The corrupting, turning aside from God, idolatry of the people manifested itself in the way they lived. They were like crazy wild cows, spiritually and actually. They were wild. And we need to be careful to not think of this as a them and then, only relating to their time. This is a reality of the fallen human heart. It brings about that sort of ruin in us. And as you would read the rest of this chapter, in a very sobering, raw reality, it brought about the death of thousands. Idolatry has only one way it will end, and that is in destruction. Unless the grace of God. Hopefully we feel the weightiness of this and think, oh my goodness. That this operates in the human heart. It does. What do we do? What hope can we have? This is absolute disaster. They were at a base of a mountain looking up. And the presence of God was descending on it. It wasn't like, like they could like forget. <laughs> and that's operating in the heart. That can be in the heart. So what do we do? How does this defeat? How is this idolatry defeated? And that brings us to our second point. What do we do? Well, the defeat of idolatry comes in two ways. We turn back and we treasure God. Idolatry in our hearts is defeated when we turn back and we treasure God. We say God is ultimate. God alone is ultimate. God only is ultimate. So what do we do in this? What do we, how do we go about this? How can we see this defeat of idolatry be real in our hearts? Well, let's think through these two aspects. First is turning back. The, the biblical word for that is repentance. Repentance. To turn back. To make an about face. If one of the aspects of idolatry is a turning aside from the Lord and going down a path that is not the right way, it's going away from God, not to God in faith, in trust, in hope, and in worship. It's going away from God in, in this focus on other things as, excuse me, as ultimate. If that's the case, then any hope of defeating God is going to come with a turning back. It does not matter how far down that path you go. There is no distance that's too far because grace is greater. Because as we sang right before this message, our sin may be many. Our idolatry may be many. Our idol factory of our heart could be in full production mode. But His mercy is still greater. It's more. So, no matter how far down this pathway we may go, away from the Lord, the first step is turning back. It's not too far. 
You're not too far. Turn back. So what do we do in turning back? What does that look like to turn back? There is a process of turning back that's critically important in each aspect of it. The first aspect of turning back, the first step in that process is to recognize your idols. To recognize your idols. To recognize the thing that you're asking to be ultimate in your heart. Yes, we are not constructing and building golden calves. If any of you are, please see me afterwards and we'll have a more like, lovingly pointed conversation. Mainly because like, I want to know, how are you doing that? Anyway, but beside that, to care for your heart. We're not doing that, but we are feeling the pull to worship other things, to ask other things to be ultimate to us. And, and here's the thing about idolatry. We could boil it all down and all the infirmities and all the other things that are on it would, would boil away and we'd boil it all down to its core, its kernel, its DNA, its very pulsating heart. At the heart of all idolatry is the worship of self. That's at the heart of all idolatry. It's just the particular idol of choice is going to be different, but at the bottom of it all, is worship of self. Sure, it may show up as, as asking possessions to be ultimate, asking comfort to be ultimate, asking relationships to be ultimate, asking acceptance to be ultimate, asking tolerance to be ultimate, asking um, uh, you know, power to be ultimate, asking all sorts of pleasures that we can experience to be ultimate. But underneath all of those things, it's really in worship of self that we have put ourselves as ultimate and not God. If you want to run a test, a self-diagnostic, usually the things that elicit our greatest emotional reactions, usually the thing, it reveals the thing we're asking to be ultimate. We need to recognize our idols, and really we need to recognize the aspect in which we are worshiping our own heart self. Let me put a little visual to this. Say you go to a custom screen print place and you have them make a balloon and they put your mug on there. Picture of your face. Some of you like coffee, so maybe you would actually put your coffee mug on there, but I mean your face. You a picture of your face on that balloon. And when we are having our hearts gripped with idolatry and at the base of idolatry is worship of self, it's like we're putting air in that balloon and it's expanding and expanding and expanding. And what is it going to do to that image of your face on the balloon? It's going to expand and stretch and distort that picture. And it's going to keep expanding. And you're going to keep blowing air in it. And you're going to keep putting air into it until a point, a breaking point, when it pops and it brings absolute ruin, spiritually or even actual ruin, into your life. We need to recognize our idols. 
that must be part of this process of turning back. Secondly, in that process, it's not just that we have to recognize our idols, but we have to recognize the sin of idolatry. That's important. We need to see it as sin. We need to see it as sin against God. Idolatry is sin against God. Asking anything not God to be God is offensive to, well, actual God. If we don't see our self-worship as sin, as leading us to disastrous spiritual ruin, then we will never be compelled to turn away from it. We'll never turn. We need to recognize our idolatry, and we need to recognize the sin of, uh, of our idolatry. But at the same time as all of this, we must also recognize the grace of God. Yes, we must see and feel and be alarmed and overwhelmed by the sin that lurks and lingers in our hearts. But we also must recognize the overwhelming, compelling, outlasting, outshining grace of God. Turning away from sin must always have a turning to God dynamic with it. Otherwise, we'll just turn away to something else that feeds our self-worship. It can't just be avoid. It must be turn away and run to God. Embraced by His grace. Experiencing forgiveness and reconciliation with Him and restoration with Him. Because that's the, the reach of His grace. It goes greater than our travelings down the wrong way. Repentance means turning away from the sin of idolatry by turning to God through the gracious provision of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who takes up Moses' work in our passage in an even more grand scale. Jesus is our representative. He's he's our, our greater Moses who deals with our sin so that God's grace is poured out on us rather than His justice for our wayward ways. That means there is no day in which the gospel of Jesus is not relevant for you. It's not to suggest you need to be saved every day, but you are being saved because Christ's grace is sufficient for you. So if you feel the lingering, lurking, lurching, grabbing hold of you, pull of idolatry in your heart, if you find yourself worshiping things, asking things, not God, to be ultimate to you, I want to warn you, that leads to a disaster for you spiritually. Turn from that. Turn away from it. See it for what it is. It's sin. But also turn to God and His grace and the gospel of your Savior Jesus and find one in Him greater than all your sin. Turn away. Turn back. Turn back. And when you turn back, no matter how far down that path you feel like you might be, the second way that this idolatry in our hearts is defeated is treasure God as ultimate. Treasure God as ultimate. 
Worshiping God is the only way to keep from idols. Holding on to the one who has ultimate worth. Seeing and beholding and, and, and adoring and knowing and following and treasuring the one who has actual ultimate worth is our means of keeping from idols. There's a letter in the New Testament, 1 John, and it ends abruptly. I'm, I always laugh when I'm reading through the new, like in those letters, and I get to 1 John, and you know, it's got that love chapter in 1 John chapter 4, and there's some other really great and compelling things, and then it just ends. It ends. Here are the very last words of this letter. Keep yourselves from idols. The end. <laughs> Keep yourselves from idols. Now, obviously, you would want to read the whole letter and you see the way that John is talking about the sufficiency of God for us and the way that it shapes the way we live, etc. But you may look at that and think, how? Well, I want to bring you back to a verse we've come to many times in our series in Exodus, and we're going to come again. And that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. How? We, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We become like what we behold. Turn away from beholding things that are not God. Behold Him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you behold Him, as you behold is a is a big word. It's, it's setting all of your heart, your affection, your adoration, your focus, your worship on God through the gospel of Jesus. As you do that, your life is being transformed little bit by little bit, little bit by little bit. Sometimes suddenly and all times slowly, God is transforming you. So my call to us to stay and to keep from idols, the answer to that question, how, do one, how does one keep from idols, is behold God through the gospel. Through Christ, we can treasure God, knowing that Christ has made an end of all of our sin and has given to us all of His righteous standing, that nothing is hanging in the balance, that He has sufficiently provided all. In Christ, we get to behold God. That is, we get to treasure God as ultimate. That is, we get to worship Him because Christ has removed all obstacles and has provided all that is needed to be right with Him and in His family. And if we become more like that which we behold, then our only means of defeating idolatry in our hearts is to behold God through the gospel of Jesus and to know Him and to love him, and to follow him, and to behold him more and more and more. That's our hope. And it is not an empty one. Our sins may be many, but his mercy is more. Our idols may be pumped out of the factory of our heart, but his grace is greater still. I want to close with a quote from that same resource. From We become what we worship. Consider these words. We love God, and in the process of loving Him, we become what God wants us to become. 
Here's the irony. Loving God, paradoxically, is the best expression of self-love. For in loving God, we are truly happy. So just as idolatry wants to twist what God has fashioned our hearts to be, by His grace, He untwists it back and says, Your greatest good is found in loving me. And so I say, friends... Love God. Keep from idols. Turn away. Turn back. Treasure Him. And let us together find just how worthy He is to be ultimate in our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for Your grace and Your mercy. And we thank You that it is greater than our sin. God, I pray that You would help us all be honest with our own selves that you would reveal to us the ways in which we turn aside from you. And would you lovingly and clearly bring about needed conviction and comfort and strength to turn back and to treasure you. God, may we grow at seeing your immeasurable worth, your glory, your goodness, and your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we close with our benediction. As you're standing, just a quick reminder, tonight at 5 p.m. Is, is our next church-wide prayer night. We're not asking for registration, pre-registration, so just come and screen and check in and whatnot, but we're going to pray together from 5 to 6. We're going to pray for a number of things that are, that are just heavy in our world and in our lives, and, and we're going to pray together. So I hope to see you and be with you tonight at 5 and, and spend that time together praying. Let's go with these words yet again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen and amen.